Welcome to the Deeper Into Movies podcast. My name is Stephen T. Hanley. I'm the founder and lead curator of Deeper Into Movies. I spoke with writer-director Henry Blake about his incredible directorial debut, County Lines. County Lines is the story of a 14-year-old boy groomed into becoming a drug career across rural areas of England. It's one of our favorite films of last year, and I think it marks the arrival of a really powerful new voice in cinema. This conversation is full of spoilers, so if you haven't seen the film, fix that. It's incredible. I picture it somewhere between Alan Clark and Shane Meadows making Top Boy. It's raw, powerful, poetic, and completely unexpected and shocking. But it's also got this meditative, ambient tone. It's just fantastic. We spoke about his favorite movies. We did a deep dive into Terminator 2. I dug into some childhood trauma about not being able to go to the cinema to see it. Enjoy. What did you grow up watching? long before you wanted to be a filmmaker, but kind of, I realized the fi- when you first start watching films, you're not thinking about cinematography, plot, who they're referencing. You just want to be as entertained as possible. Okay, that's such a great question because I think me as a filmmaker, apart from my wife, Victoria, who's obviously my producer, she's a huge uh, has a huge responsibility to me being a filmmaker. But if you really want to go back to the source, you know, I blame my parents for getting me into this mess because I grew up with two parents and a sister and we all loved movies. And my father in particular had a very liberal sense of what I was allowed to watch. So at a very young age, and I'm talking like seven and eight, I was watching Predator I was watching Predator 2, I was watching Alien and Aliens, and then I was going to school quoting all that shit. And my friends were like, holy shit. Um, And then from there, I really got into, so I watched, well, I think when I was like 10, I watched um, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and I fell in love with that. And then when I was like 11 or 12, I watched Pulp Fiction, um and then i was watching like um, quite hardcore american stuff and then late at night in new zealand they would play horror films but like really great horror films like you know the puppet master series and like hellraiser and then all the jasons but from original like from the very beginning nightmare on elm street so i would stay up and watch all of that And then at the same time, my mother was introducing me to photography and galleries and art and Monet and uh, French cinema as well. Like we would watch modern French cinema, which was either crime or it was quite like, some of it was quite fucked up, you know, like about family relationships that are just... Oh, that was fucked up? Not Texas Chainsaw or Predator? No, because to me... (laughs) 
that's what I you think that's a really line. good <laughs> like yeah <laughs> toe pooper yeah Godard no 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 <laughs> warning no it's just you know it's just like really fucked up family relationships and stuff and, and we would love all of that so I grew up with like quite sort of free American indie stuff you know late night horror and then quite powerful drama in the form of quite messed up you know quite messed up French stuff. And then we would go to the cinema every single Sunday as well. My dad loved going to the cinema. And that that was more contemporary stuff. So we would watch new releases. So, you know, I remember going to the cinema with him once and I was desperate to see Street Fighter with Jean-Claude Van Damme. And he was like, no, we're not, we're not watching that. And I was like, what? And he was like, we're going to watch this because that looks so much more better. That looks better. It was Dumb and Dumber. And I was like crying. I walked into the cinema crying. I was like, fuck you, dude. I want to see Street Fighter. Anyway, by the end of Dumb and Dumber, I was like, thank you, Dad. That was the greatest thing I've ever seen because I found it so funny, you know. And he, and then he showed me at home Easy Rider and um, Taxi Driver. And I was very young. And I said to him when I was watching Taxi Driver, I turned around and I said, but Dad, like, he's not Robert De Niro is not doing anything and he was like exactly oh wow <laughs> and I was like and I remember watching Easy Rider with him and by the end of it because I loved the um you know the graveyard sequence that really tripped me out I was like 13 but you know what happens obviously at the end of Easy Rider yeah and I I, I turned around and I went it was the first American film that I'd seen an ending like that you know like where I was like you can't do that. You can't do that. You can't do that. You can't, you can't do that. And my dad was laughing and they said, well, they did it, you know? Yeah. So, so does that give you an idea of my sort of, it was quite liberal. There was one film that I wasn't allowed to watch from my mum. She barred it, right? Barred it. And she, and it only drove my obsession for it more. And that was train spotting. She really? didn't like the yeah. She didn't like the drugs in it. There was something around the drugs, the, the depiction of it. Anyway, I I ordered a VHS back in the day when the world was young and mighty and innocent, and when we could order VHSs, and I could order. I sort of snooped a, a VHS order, and it came through the post, and I was like, and Mum was like, "What's that?" I was like, "Nothing, nothing." <laughs> and then when she was out, I watched it, and it just blew my mind. Um, and and then I became one of my major obsessions, and it still is, is Candyman. Oh, it's such an incredible film. Yeah. And I just, I, I became obsessed with that film at a very young age. And it had a huge impact on me as a filmmaker because it scared the shit out of me. But I couldn't stop watching it. And I was very moved by it as well. Um, there's something very erotic about it about the central character and and there with Tony Todd obviously drawing her in. Well, he plays it like a Shakespearean tragedy. Othello, right? Yeah. Um, and Bernard Rose, well, I didn't realize until recently when we were doing a Jarman season at Moth Club that Bernard Rose was like a pal of Jarman and a really avant-garde filmmaker. Yes which I think is why he had such an interesting take on the horror genre. Yeah, and also, like, for me, I think 
the titles, the opening titles, you know, the overhead shot of the cities with the, yeah, with, with the, the Philip Glass music. Incredible. I was just like, this is, this is, it was one of those films that immediately spoke to me because it just, it, it went in the direction that a lot of the horrors at the time weren't going in. You know, it was expressionistic. It was bold. It was very emotional. You know, it's a very emotional film as well, you know, with the Cabrini Green and the residents yeah. and what's going on there. And there's this beautiful social commentary in it, which I think's really drew me in. And then also it's just really fucking scary. Like it's really unnerving. You run to the mirror at the end of it and you say, Candyman, 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 Candyman. And then you're like, <laughs> and you run out and to me those are that's what a great movie does you know it actually physically changes it change changes you and you know it, it affected my behavior um going back to your trauma of not being able to see street fighter yeah when i was a teenager i had a cool older brother who was my gateway into movies and similar to you he was the my parents trusted him to be um, responsible and say, you can watch this, this is cool, but these are a no. And he had, um, there was a competition in the local paper of preview tickets to see Terminator 2 Judgment Day. And I think I was around 13 and he was like, I want to take you, but <sighs> I'm with my whole gang here. And if you don't get in, I'm going to have to drive you home <laughs> and then miss the film myself. And I love you, but I don't think I can do it. He went, came home, was trying to be poker face with all his friends. And I was like, how was it? And he was oh like, my God. and he was like, honestly. And I'm like, give it to me straight, brother. And he was like, the best action film I've ever seen. And then they were like, Oh my God, what about the freeway sequence? And I was like, what's the freeway sequence? He was like, oh my God, can't believe it. Can't understand the effects. Can't understand the action set pieces. Ending was fucking moving. And I'm like, just stop. Just stop. I'm just going to fucking go and watch, you know, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and try and get <laughs> over this for the rest of the day. But the vanilla ice. But you can't <laughs> even... It's weird when you have that thing as a kid when people are telling you scenes from films that you can't visualize or Google image and stuff in your brain. Well, my, I was always a fucking obsessive geek. So yeah, my brain was just overheating, trying to conjure up in my brain what this like, they were saying like, he's a human, he's a robot. He looks like a human, but he's made out of this metal that melts and then he can come back to life and rebuild. And I'm like, I don't even know what that, looks like i can't even Bro, do, you, do you remember do you remember when you first watched it? i want to hear about when you went I'm, if your brother has had had any beating heart i'm sure he would have taken you to see it right no we he got um this was in he was we had a uh someone in our local video store always had pirates so we oh, had right. a, we got a pirate copy and then but yeah, the pirate copy was always weird because it was like a duplication of a duplication of a du duplication. So it was kind of a watered down, grainy image. Yeah. T2 and sepia. 
Um, yeah, as James Cameron <laughs> intended. <Yeah. laughs> um, you know what's so sad is that that dilemma, because you remember when you're trying to bust into a movie, when you know going to Hoyt Cinema in New Zealand, as it was at the time, and we were always trying to get into films that we weren't allowed in. And you, the, the stakes were this, and I don't think young people have it these days. We don't get into this movie; it's going to fuck our day. Yeah, like, do you, do you know what I mean? Like, it's not just like, oh, we'll watch something else. No, but you it's can't like, see it anywhere else. You can't download it or go to another screening if you're the only cinema in town who's showing it. And it was like, and, and the stakes yeah. are that high, right? And there's something about the joy of that. I think personally, Terminator Two. I watched it at thirteen with my friend. Thirteen years old is the greatest age to watch Terminator Two. Because Edward Furlong was my Harry, Harry Potter. Yes. Do, do, do you know yeah. what I mean? When Welcome to the Jungle came on on, the, on his motorbike, on that fucking, on that stereo, and he was bowling through LA, I was like, that kid's living my dream. What made you want to become an actor? You're, you were an actor before a director. Yeah, I, I, I'd always wanted to be an actor, bro. You know, and I, I was trying to get into school plays before I was allowed. And I was telling mum, you know, I want to I wanna leave school and be an actor. And I just think watching movies, you know, it was like, I want to do that. And I was obsessed with it. And then at 12 years old, I did Bugsy Malone and I played Bugsy. And I was talent scouted by the director because he was a professional actor. Todd Rippon, his name is. He's a dude. And um, I then got a TV show and then I started working professionally in theatre and TV and a little bit of film up until I was 17. And then I had to leave school for good because I got a TV show um, and then did, I was, you know, while I was working. So... I always told my mum, I said, you know, I'm going to leave school one day for acting. I'll have to. She was like, oh, but I was right. So when did you pivot toward directing? You well, said you had a, mo- a weird life moment where you readdressed acting and what you wanted to do with your life. Well, I think transitioning from being a child actor to an adult actor is very difficult. You know, it's, I, I have great admiration for anyone who can do it, of which there have been many but many haven't. And I, under, I, I think that transition for me, I realized that I, whilst I was in London and I, all of my friends were actors and we were all together and we'd been in plays, etc. I think probably if I was honest with myself, around about 21, 22, I started falling out of love with it. And when you do something for as you must remember by that time I'd been acting for you know, 10, 12 years. Um, I'd been auditioning since 10. I'd had an agent since I was 12. So it wasn't something that I felt like I could walk away from immediately because there was a lot of you know history. It so happened that as that deep sort of process was going on, my friends needed people to direct them in plays and monologues, etc. There weren't a lot of directors around really. And so I just always put my hand up, you know, because I was up for working. I just like being creative. And then Victoria, 
uh, and a couple of my other friends, my boys, said, you know, with the greatest respect, you're a better director than you are an actor. And it felt good to direct because there wasn't all this baggage. You know, like acting's hard and it comes with a lot of things and baggage. And I just, for me, I felt free and I still feel free when I direct. So she introduced me, Victoria, actually, to the work of John Cassavetes and Von Trier. And those two filmmakers at that time as a young man, I hadn't actually discovered their work before that, which I was quite surprising. But I just went, I knew, I was just like, that's it. That's it. That's it. That's, it's signed, sealed, delivered. That's what I need to do with my life. Um, so I owe a lot to my two friends and my, I owe a lot to Victoria because, you know, I think she's, I think people see it in you before. What I will say is my father, one night when I was 15, he was cooking um, and uh, just having a little glass of vino tinto. And we were talking about acting and I was talking about what I want to do. And he said, he said to me, you know, I think with you, Henry, like you'll 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 move on from the acting and you'll become a writer director. You know, when you're 15 years old and your parents tell you something, you're just like, shut the fuck up. <laughs> <laughs> like, Dad, shut up, shut up, shut up. Right? You know, like Will Ferrell and um Step Brothers. Step Brothers, yeah. You know. <laughs> so let me get this straight. You're kicking us out, you're not giving us a flat, and you're telling that we have to go to therapy. Are you fucking high? And um <laughs> So I was like Will Ferrell in that moment. I was like, get the fuck up, you geriatric fuck. Like, you don't even know what you're talking about. And my dad, bless him, just went, okay, and just kept cooking, you know. So he's a wise man. What was so triggering about your father telling you that you, he thinks you're going to stop acting think, and move to probably, behind the scenes? Probably the truth. Right. <laughs> I mean, it's probably. not like you said you're going to become a cab driver or start working at McDonald's or something. You know, wasn't crushing your dreams. Maybe it was a way of him getting me away from acting because he knew he didn't want me to be a cab driver or, right, yeah. <laughs> you know, so he's planting the idea. I don't know, but you, you must understand as a young man at that time, you know, I was obsessed with acting. I've been obsessed with acting for since I was a kid. Like, I've been obsessed with it. It's a craft, and I still am obsessed with it. I think it's an amazing craft. So when you you have that obsession and someone tells you that you're not going to ultimately be there and be something else, you know. Yeah, I can see that. It doesn't work. It doesn't compute. <laughs> Fill in the timeline from 2012 to 2017. You were making roughly a short film a year. That's it. That's it. How are you supporting yourself at this time? So we would, I was, I was a youth worker, you know, I would, I'd, you know, mentor vulnerable kids and work with the families and work with the local authorities. And, and uh, Victoria did it as well a little bit and other friends did it. And at the same time, when we were making the short films, we would run uh, kids' workshops, you know, and that work, we would charge a little nominal fee, I think between like three and five pounds to come 
The parents would love it because we'd take their kids off their hands for, you know, the morning on a Saturday morning or we'd do a half-term workshop and that would pay for the short films. Really? That's amazing. Yeah. What made so, you become a youth worker? I didn't want to do a bar job, you know, and a friend of ours uh, who now lives in New York was doing it and she was like, look, it, it pays quite well. It doesn't pay quite well, but when you were that young, you know, uh, it, it, it gave us a bit of freedom in terms of time because it's not, it's not, you know, depending on how long you're paired up with a young person or the commission or how much local authority support there is, you know, you can be doing it once, twice a week with, you know, or you can do it every day, but you're not, you're not maybe doing it, you know, all day, every single day. Um, at that time, anyway, the shape of the work was quite different. So it afforded us to work on our craft as artists as well, you know. And is this how you first became aware of uh, drug trafficking and grooming that became the theme of County Lions? Yeah, I did. Like in 2015, I mean, 2012 to 2015, I did some really really 2011 to 2015, I did some really heavy, heavy youth work, you know, um, saw some extremely distressing stuff, but I hadn't come across children being trafficked. And it wasn't until 2015 when a friend of mine called me and said, listen, I've got two groups. They're very vulnerable. It's very, very tough. And I need some help. Would you be interested? And I said, yeah. And we kind of were at this pupil referral unit for a whole academic year, really. And it was it was really distressing. It was really tough seeing children going missing and kind of seeing all of the trauma and all the fallout and having to safeguard and seeing the, the pupil referral unit staff dealing with all of this. And they were doing a wonderful job in as much as they can. Um, and it was really at that point that I sort of felt you know, this is a very unique access and perspective that I'm getting on this. And I felt like I've got something to say. I'm trying to get a feature off the ground before, but the script just didn't land with people, you know. Um, you know, it served its purpose and I learned a lot. But I knew with this, this was something that was not going to go away. And it was going to be, it was, it was an opportunity to war for something uh, powerful. You made a short film of County Lions First. Yeah, I did. Was this just to prove to producers and investors that you have the chops to make a feature film? Yeah, that's a, I mean, that's a really great way of putting it. it. I hadn't been, Victoria or myself hadn't been to film school. The short films that we were making 2012 to say 2017 didn't play it or they played at a few festivals, but nothing major. There was no BAFTA nominations for, for short films and anything. So the, the industry just didn't know who I was. And, and to be honest, they weren't interested and completely understandably because I hadn't done anything. So the short, it was like, well, we need to put all our eggs in one basket and um, get into a lot of debt in the process <laughs> to really demonstrate what we can do as filmmakers. Because otherwise, how else are we going to do it? I was thinking when you're taking a real life issue like children becoming drug traffickers, how is it transferring a real life subject matter to a narrative feature film? 
Well, I didn't want to make a documentary because they weren't really. I didn't. I didn't feel that they were my vocation, and also I love working with actors and having been one. You know, it's nice work if you can get it. Um, it was just. It was a tough balance to strike. It took work. You know, there was a lot of development. There was a lot of notes. There was a lot of wrestling with, you know feedback etc um i always think when you're dealing with something that's happening and current and social as a filmmaker you're never going to be include everyone everyone's perspectives or everyone's experience of it that's not really the goal what you're trying to do is kind of boil it down to its essential sort of atomical makeup if you like and i think we achieve that with the film we managed to present youth and drugs in a way that really makes people understand what's at stake here, you know, not just the kind of social polemic, but actually what this does to someone psychologically, emotionally, and the family, you know, and the legacy of that. You said you actively avoid wanting to make a great urban drama and you didn't want your film to look or feel yeah. anything like that why did you want to swerve that because it's been done and because there was a strong consistency of it being done in the country and i when i in my youth work that's not what i was seeing i was seeing something more intense more traumatic but also more lyrical maybe you know like just because a child or a young person presents as difficult, complex, vulnerable, um, you know, violent, volatile. A lot of those young people were also very poetic and had a degree of tragedy. I think tragedy is very important here from a cinematic perspective because tragedy has great ability to, to move and to to then become very visual. And I didn't feel that that was necessarily being expressed as in a way that it could. What were you watching for inspiration? I mean, one film that I really just watched and went, that's it, is Come and See, you know? Yeah. <laughs> oh, God. Someone just bought that yeah. on our store. And honestly, I sent him a Martin Lawrence stand-up <laughs> comedy special as well as yeah. like aftercare. Yeah, I think I think when I watched it, I went, this is what we need to do. Because that's it, there's a big correlation between uh, Come and See and the damage that it, it imparts on its central character to the damage that I was seeing in my youth work of the young people. And I respected the film because it treated its subject matter with the utmost seriousness. And I think that hasn't really, in terms of county lines, like I think that's one thing that a lot of young audiences have said to me is they've said thank you for treating what our generation's going through with the utmost seriousness and not, you know, condescend or patronise or, or, or sanitise it. Yeah, Tyler is pretty much just a foot soldier yeah, in this whole thing. A very vulnerable one at that, but also he's so 
there's something very involving about him. He, you feel when you watch him, he could be any young person, you know. And there's something about there was something about that in in Come and See, wasn't there? That the child was like a blank canvas for all of this evil mm-hmm. um, and dysfunctional human nature to sort of wreak its havoc on. Conrad, who played Tyler in the film, his transformation mm-hmm. is incredible. How did you work with him on that? I think we cast him, I think, a year before or roughly. So there was a lot of discussion. We would meet up. I would give him quite a lot of, well, not a lot, but just a series of questions to go away and mull on. And so he would go away. And obviously, he's a very internal actor, quite thoughtful. So never want to step in the way of that. But you need to give that process time. And I think... I think also, you know, I said to him and I was very clear that, uh, you know, for 24 days or whoever long we're shooting, you're going to, you're going to, it's going to be tough in moments. I'm not going to lie. I mean, any film that you make is tough, like, you know, but I'm going to push you and I'm going to be very honest with you. And I don't think it's, we need to go further, but you're always going to have safe words. You're going to have action and cut, you know? And they're your safe words. They're telling you that something is beginning, but they're also telling you that something is ending. And for real kids out there who are being exploited and traumatized, they don't have any safe words. So that's the responsibility that you have. And that's the responsibility that I expect you to meet. And I think that then sets the tone of like, right, I've got to get to work, you know? So... I don't think you should ever be afraid of putting that responsibility on an actor. Because it's so amazing that um, he starts off as a vulnerable kid. You can see the transition as he's slowly getting into dealing that he's posturing. He's getting, he's almost got a deeper voice, but then he sends at the end, he goes right back to being a teenager. And it was almost like a possession, almost kind of remind me of the exorcist when, Reagan at the end bounces back out to being a child again. Yeah, that's an amazing film. One thing that you hear from parents a lot who have been affected by this and are continually affected is that they literally see their their child transform before their eyes. And that aspect of that statement is very interesting, isn't it? Because it all ties in with a sort of natural progression of young people evolving, which is adolescence. But then, and that, that's yeah. fucking painful enough, isn't it? It's like <laughs> for everyone involved, adolescence is painful enough. But then you heap on something like county lines exploitation, and it is a sort of possession because these young people are being anesthetized and groomed and coerced and driven by fear and violence into into states of minds which are incredibly dark. And I think Conrad did a great job at that. So 40 minutes in, there's an incredible sequence where Tyler gets on the train and he has to go to the crack house overnight and he's just been given a map and been told to go out and to deal And we have no idea how long he's going to be there, how long he's going to be kept there. His mom has no idea where he is. And it's just so fucking stressful and despairing to watch. 
So we see one more train journey after that where he goes out and he's dealing in the rural areas. And that's the sequence where he gets attacked and he gets the acid thrown on him. And so pretty much by the 60-minute mark, Tyler is completely done and he's been completely destroyed. And the way you just set this up was just so tight and harsh and brutal. And we've got 30 minutes of a film left then just to see the aftermath and how this will play out. That was a long rambling question, but can you talk about that? Let's start with the editing. Yeah, I mean, like, you know, and then welcome to Paco Sweetman, who's the editor. <laughs> because there, I mean, I must say this, like Paco is obviously a friend of yours, is a dear friend of mine, and we've worked on a few projects now, and he's a very, very gifted editor. And I think that pacing that you pick up with, pick up on in the film is hit. I've always said this about Paco. I, I noticed that when we first cut our short film, our first ever short film together, I knew I'd found my editor because his sense of rhythm is what's so special about him. Um, so his sense of rhythm as an editor is unlike anything that I've worked with before or since. And that's why I'll always you know, fight for him and want him at my side. And I think that's what you're picking up on in that whole sequence is the pacing and the rhythm of that sequence. So superb. I should say that from the first assembly, the very first assembly that he has put together on County Lines, there are scenes in that sequence that have not been touched. Wow. Because I watched them and I went, no, we don't need to touch that. You've nailed it. And I mean, that's a credit to him as an, as an editor, isn't it? It's like where you watch an assembly and you go, I, I, I'm, and he was, he was like, are you sure? Are you high? Are you like, what's wrong with you? <laughs> I was like, he's, he's thinking, he thinks that I'm weird because like I watched the assembly and I was like, cool, man. Like, let's just get to work. He's like, we're not going to fall out. You're not going to like disappear for three weeks. And so I was like, no, man, there's, there's loads of really good stuff in there. And there's actually scenes that I don't want to, touch and he was like are you <laughs> i don't know why that's weird but his sense of rhythm on something you know like the adult the, the sudden cuts and stuff that when yes. when when it comes back that's all paco you know that's all paco just going take five minutes <laughs> you know what i mean like he just he'll get an idea and he'll go just take five minutes and i, I love that you know I, I find that so thrilling to be around you know i'm like bro do your thing like you, you and you know he's got an encyclopedic knowledge of film absolutely yeah he's, he's he's inspiring in that way I just i just love the way he views stuff i think he's got a very musical sense as an editor he's he's he is about obviously story and you know you know but he's also about Try, I think he's just really good at creating tone as well. And yeah, yeah, he's he's a very, very special artist, I think. You know. So all of that, all of that whole sequence, a lot of people comment on that, how strong it is, and really that's him. That's him. But you've ramped it up so hard and he's had the attack, and then you just have almost this then you leave yourself 30 minutes for the aftermath to see 
this is where the damage goes from here and this is for yeah i mean the, the core of the film is a mother and a son you know so if that's yeah. the core then really that's what you want to be you know exploring in your final act is is the is the nucleus of the story and i think that's where you know conrad and ashley did such exceptional work is in that final act and and how the fallout of all of all of that occurs and you know but some people have said well it's such a hopeful ending and I, I i disagree i think if you don't pick up on the precariousness of that of the the utter fragility and the sort of sense that you know anything could change at any moment and there's a legacy here that has been left on these characters that will last forever you yeah. know like i can't see how you watch the film and go Oh, that's a happy ending, you know. So uh, they come together because they have to, because in order to survive, that's what it's about. It's about survival. They can't survive without one another. Um, but yeah, it's it's powerful for sure. I didn't want to show any. I didn't want to show any gains to this because there are no gains. No, no one gains. The only character that wins in this is Simon, played by Harris. That's an incredible performance. Yes, yeah, that is an incredible performance. It's he. I said to him when we were prepping, like he came on quite early as well. Stayed very loyal to the to the project. When we were prepping, I said, "I want you to be the shark in Jaws." You know, like you need to rip through this world and then go away, and then there's still water again. You know what I mean? Because he's not in it for a lot. There's a really interesting scene early mm. on in the grooming process where Simon takes Tyler out for lunch. Tyler's talking about his home life and says his dad's not on the scene and he has to be the man of the house and it's stressful. And there's a moment where Simon pauses and reflects for a second. And it's almost a moment of vulnerability. Mm. And then he snaps back out of it and says, well, that's what being a man is, isn't it? Stress, stepping up. And yeah, I just thought that sequence was really interesting. Or I may be reading too much into that pause, but that's how I saw it. No, I don't think, I think, the, I think the, you know, when we were, when Paco was cutting that, you know, that scene, there was about three or four versions of, of that scene because there was so much good material, both Conrad and Harris. Harris in particular in the scene has a real challenge to try and plant psychological ideas in, in Conrad and, and have the confidence to not push it, you know, and, and remain very composed. There's a, a great stature about him. But there's a lot, like, I remember Paco saying to me when he was cutting it, he was like, there are many reactions here. There are many colors. There are many, the palace is full. Like he was, you know, when you've got that many options, yeah. it's great, but it can also be like, oh, we could fit. Cause we were, we were going, well, we could go there and then we could go to that little expression there. I mean, there was that, their performances in that were that good. I imagine that's what it might've been like cutting the heat scene with Pacino and De Niro where you saw, I know, I know allegedly that they just use one yes. take basically, 
uh, throughout the film because the take was so good. But when you're working with actors who are very, very good, I mean, Conrad by that point was in the zone and Harris is in particular an extremely well-crafted film actor. He knows his instrument and he's very aware of, of every little thing and that uh, there was a real joy to shoot that. It was beautiful. How do you feel at the end of a film when Harris asks Tyler's mum, how's he doing? Do you think Harris has any remorse for what he's put him through? That might, those moments might be fleeting, but I doubt it. Ultimately, he's wedded to, you know, a greater cause, which is built on, you know, exploitation and profit and status and, and power really you know it's about power and control um i think there's a recognition that from him in that moment that this is not what has happened to your son is hard you know it's tough but it's collateral damage yeah per se. yeah it's it's this is this is what comes with the ter- terms and conditions even though I didn't really lay out the terms and conditions in full to your to your to your little boy, um, still, this is what happens, and you know, that's what I find so sad. I find it sad. I remember working with a boy once in East London as a youth worker, and he said to me, "You know, if I get shot or if I die." Uh, I mean, that's just the way it is. That's how my world is, you know? He's like 15 years old. And it really upset me because I was like, there's, we talk about like aspiration and opportunity for young people, right? But like, you also have to be very careful with young people when a relationship to death becomes normal or becomes a, becomes a reality in their minds. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And that young person had a relationship, had, had, there was a, there was an active relationship to the idea of dying, being killed or death that seemed utterly tangible and normalized to that young person. And that is very worrying to see in someone, you know? Um, Mm -hmm. And he wasn't saying it to be provocative. He wasn't saying it to be, uh, to elicit sympathy or empathy, he was very matter of fact and quite detached about it. What would you say your biggest struggle was in the making of County Lines? Any scene or moment on the production that particularly? I think the scene with the when Tyler is physically abusive to his mother. Yeah, that's a very intense scene. There was a tense scene. The way we wanted to shoot it was locked off, static really relying on the actors' performances. We didn't want to rely on the cut. Um, It's a long dialogue scene, relatively. Um, It requires a certain intensity and accuracy, emotionally and psychologically. And one thing that I hadn't told anyone, but I've spoken about it in interviews now, was I've actually been in that scene as a youth worker, I've had to separate a mother and a a, a son from physically abusing his mother. And that's incredibly 
hard, you know. So in a way to try and reauthor that and see it play out again was I, I think I think it surprised me how distressing it was. It took me by surprise. And what's the biggest lesson you've taken away from your debut movie? Get proper catering. <laughs> Shane Meadows says that. Shane Meadows says if there's good food available, people are, I always do that on any little shoot I work on or anything, just lots of snacks. The way to film people is through their stomachs, that's for sure. Um, good catering. Um, what have I learned? I think people want to summarize you as a filmmaker once you've made a feature in a 40-character tweet. Yeah. They're very quick to say, oh, okay, well, that's what you are in your totality as a filmmaker. And so you have a duty, if you get another shot of it, to go the other way. You know? the I, I really have always believed this. I think that... A life in art, a life in film is is always going to be very challenging. It's a great privilege as well. But the one thing that we always have up our sleeve, and you you, you included as the curator, and I think a lot of people forget about this, is we always, always have the element of surprise in our back pocket because we we can engineer that. Do you know what I mean? So I was surprised at how quick and how um, consistent the summation of me as a filmmaker has has been kind of laid down. Yeah, well, like you're the gritty British director. No, the new social realist kid on the okay, block. Okay, right. You know what I mean? Following in Loach. Yes. And, you know, look, we, we love Loach and he's contributed a lot. But when I made this film, I wasn't, I had absolutely zero ambitions from that perspective. I was trying to kind of write and film a diary entry. Um, so it's it's interesting. We now live in a sort of 40-character tweet world, which is that's how you're summed up. Having said that, you know, the, the sort of larger critics and the critical reviews have have not done that. It's been more the sort of you know, the greater, you know how John Voigt says information. Yeah. It's just out there. Not John Voigt, but the other character in him. Um, you just pick up on it, don't you? You pick up on the sense of, oh, okay. I never said that. I never signed a contract that I was saying that. I never, you know? Yeah, I think everyone, I, it's, it's almost you can't help but to, it's so annoying. I do it myself and I'm like, oh, it's this meets this. You know, you, you just draw together. I don't necessarily mind that. I don't mind if you t- do a film and it's like, oh, it's this meets this. I think that that's fine. It's when because usually if when you're merging you, the two films and you're, something in the middle you're making is, oh, that's a. It's the per, it's the filmmaker that I'm talking about. It's like, right. oh, well, they only they can only really do that, or they, they, I mean, I mean, they're well, they're that that's them, right? And there are filmmakers out there who play into that, but I think for me. I, I've spent my whole life, even before film, you know, if you were to tell me to go that way, I'm going to, I will just go that way. That's like, job. Are you thinking <laughs> of going forward doing different, have you got like different genres in mind that you'd, you'd want to tackle? Very, very different. 
the next two projects that I'm working on right now are if you if you I want you, our next podcast that we do yes. in a few years. I think I want you just the first thing will be like, holy shit, I didn't see that coming. Yeah, that's exciting. Yeah. yeah. And that is exciting, isn't it? And that excites me. And, you know, without being too selfish about it, I've got to remain excited about the work. Of course. Yeah. You know, why would I want to make County Lines part deux? Like, why, why would I want to do that? Like, I just, I don't see any value to that. I don't see any contribute contribution to the f- film industry or to cinema. And so, yeah, you know, like there's a lot I want to explore and, and I might not, you know, they might not all be, you know, seminal masterpieces, but at least I can say, like Matt Damon says to that fucking punk and good or hunting, at least I won't be unoriginal. there you have it that was our talk with director henry blake county lines is available on bfi player the dvd and i hope blu-ray is out on april 19th thanks again as always to joshua eustace of telephone tel aviv for our incredible music and our engineer ewan hinselwood thanks for listening